This morning, I'm in Isaiah chapter 9. And there's kind of a funny thing about Christmas. And that is, everybody knows the scriptures about Christmas. So, I can't teach anything new. I'm not going to teach anything that's so remarkable that people go, hmm, I didn't know that. So when I say Isaiah 9, everybody goes, oh yeah, I know Isaiah 9. Been there, done that, what's for lunch? So I'm not going to teach anything new. But we don't need something that we haven't heard before. You know what we need? We need to keep going this year. That is, our times are hard, and they're getting harder, aren't they? And it's easy to lose heart. I don't know if you've thought about that. Do you find yourself going, I don't know if I can do this anymore? Okay, one. The live stream cannot hear him, but there's, there's a witness and a testimony. You think, hey, I believe in Jesus, but this Christmas is looking kind of desolate. Kind of like when the government goes, oh, here's Christmas. Oh, you can't have, oh, we're not exactly sure. And you go, man, you think it's grim? But what I'm excited about is that God is really into Christmas. And his big project is making lasting peace on the earth. And what motivates him is his zeal. That is, that means he's into it. And it's the zeal of love. And that's why we're in Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to read this. It says, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. As when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her, by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death Upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian, for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, 
there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, when I prayed about what do I teach for Christmas, because I've taught it all before, what do you want? And this just pops straight into my mind. And what I thought was appropriate about it is this scripture describes the times that we live in so appropriately. If you read the verses just before Isaiah 9, that is chapter 8, from about verse 19, here's what it says. And when they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter. Should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry. And it shall happen when they're hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God, and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Now that really describes the kind of times that we live in. Because there in verse 19, it talks about those who are seeking some kind of knowledge because the times are so dark. What do we do? Well, that betrays a great lack of knowledge, how to deal with the times. That is, what there is knowledge in the world is not enough. And so people are thinking, let's try to find some higher knowledge. Let's go to mediums and wizards. Because the answer has to be somewhere beyond us. People aren't figuring this stuff out. Now, they're looking in the wrong places. And for sure, the dead don't know what to do. Because they're dead. They don't have the answers. So, no encouragement there. And you notice that people are famished. Verse 21, hard-pressed and hungry. Now that might be literal. 1% they get to eat enough. And the rest of the world struggles to get anything to eat. But there's a metaphoric hunger that's even worse. Because you can get all you want to eat and more and still not be satisfied. There's still something missing and you're famished. You know, we have to deal with the curse of God on this world that it's all futile. 
All of our effort, all of our work, everything that we do is for nothing, ultimately. And so there's no satisfaction. And you know, that kind of drives you nuts. You're running on your little hamster wheel trying to make things go, and the faster you go, the nowhere you get. And it kind of makes you angry and helpless. You notice in verse 21, when they're hungry, they're going to be enraged. Look for somebody to blame. Look up. What's God doing about this? He's doing a lousy job as usual. Curse the king. Government's not doing anything about this. They can't fix anything. Because it's the same problems. Over and over and over. And they throw the, th the same things at it. Let's throw money at it. Let's throw education at it. Let's throw business at it. Let's throw something at it. And you keep throwing the same things at it. Nothing changes. Have you noticed? So it's easy to get angry at God, angry at the government. But you look down on the world, kind of this way, and there's no encouragement either. There's trouble, darkness, gloom of anguish. So there aren't any answers. And people are kind of hemmed in. This is, this is the way... The Hebrew language pictures trouble, is being hemmed in. And there's no freedom to move, so you're kind of stuck, and there's no place to go, there's no answers, and it's dark, and it's getting darker. So ultimately, this situation is hopeless. And it's gloomy because there's no answer on the horizon. But what God does here is promises the opposite of gloom. And the opposite of gloom is peace. And there's a lot involved in peace. We think of peace like all the nations ran out of bullets. So they can't make any more war while they're manufacturing more bullets and drones, hypersonic missiles that nobody can track. And of course, our favorite, nuclear weapons that we can't wait to use as soon as we get them. And if nobody can fire anything or fire a rocket or destroy anything, we call that peace. But... The biblical idea of peace is huge. And it includes things like light. That is, imagine being in darkness that is so dark, you can't see your hand in front of your face, you don't know where to go, and when you try to go, you fall over something. And then the lights come on. And you realize... Okay, I can go around this and do that and miss this. I know where to go. That's part of peace, is to have light. And then there's life. That is in verse 3, you've multiplied the nation. 
It's a situation where there's fullness. There's family. And the more light, the more life. And then in the middle of verse 3, it says, They rejoice before you. Other translations have, in your presence. God is close. That's a part of peace. And it's going to be like a good harvest. When you have a harvest and you're done with the harvest and everything's been gathered in because we've got all this stuff. And so you think, well, it's been a long year. It's been a lot of work, but hey, we're done now. And we're going to have fun. It's always fun after a harvest. And then it says, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now, you know, after a war, everybody's happy if you're the winner. Because first of all, that means you didn't die. And I'm really glad I didn't die. But not only that, we won. And not only did we win, but we get everything that the other guys had. So we're going to make a profit. We're coming out of this thing really good. Hey, look, babe, I'm still alive. And look what I got. You're happy. Now take these two things and realize the happiness doesn't come from a great harvest and it doesn't come from I survived the war. It comes only from being in the presence of God. And that presence, that closeness, you rejoice in it because there's life there and there's peace. So you're satisfied in the presence of God with light. We're beginning to define peace. But there's another aspect to this peace. There is no more enemy to oppress. Look in verse 4 where it says, You have spare and the anguish and the helpless anger. There is a person that Isaiah calls the oppressor. And this oppressor is somebody who yokes people up to a burden they can't carry. And then beats them with it. Beats them with his rod. Whips them. That's the situation. In chapter 14 of Isaiah, he's going to speak more about him. And it turns out that this is talking about the devil. So in Isaiah 14, verse 4, it says, You will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, he who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations in anger, is persecuted and no one hinders. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Boy, without this guy, everybody's at peace. Everybody's singing. And it describes about him that he's just beating the nations continually. Pow, pow, pow. It's always going on. 
always chained to a burden that you can't carry. And he's saying, sure, you can carry it. Keep going. And everybody drags themselves through life. Darkness, anguish, gloom. Now, Isaiah is referring to the fallen angel called Lucifer. We know him as the devil. And the devil is described as the god of this world. And he rules this world harshly. And the real power of the gloom and the hunger and the helplessness is a spirit that no one can overcome. And this means that the essential problem of the world is not political, it's not economic, it's not anything to do with the environment or education or equal opportunity or any of those things that the government likes to call the bad guy. The government is looking in the wrong direction. The problem is we are disconnected from God. And that means death. And then the devil is ruling this world. But at the end of verse 4, God says he's going to overcome as in the day of Midian. And you have to know your Bible to go, what? <laughs> and this refers to Judges, the book of Judges, and Gideon. And it says that the nation Israel sinned against God, and God gave them into the hand of the nation Midian. And they would come up with their camels like locusts, innumerable. So Israel was outnumbered. And they would just come into the land and take everything and burn the rest. And Israel was helpless. And the first thing that God does to solve all this is to establish relationship with one guy, and that's Gideon. That's where it starts. And then everything that unfolds is because Gideon has a relationship with God. Now it's time to fight Midian. And Gideon has gotten together an okay army. It's nothing in compared to Midian. And God says, we got a problem here. you got too many guys. When we get done, Israel is going to think, I did this. I can do this. He says, you got too many. So finally, he gets it down to 300 guys against an army that you cannot count like locust. God says, okay, now we're going to do this. And he gives Gideon a strategy, and it works, and it freaks out Midian, and they conquer. Now, God does this, again, relationship, and then showing that it's him only that does this. It's going to be an act of God, 
with divine power. That's how God is going to do this. So he's going to solve the problem of disconnect and the oppressor by giving us a child. Okay, he's going to be a child, a human being, because that's how children come into the world. And it says the government is going to be upon his shoulder. That means he personally bears the duties and the responsibilities of running the world. So this child is not going to beat his people and make them serve him. He is going to serve them. Isn't that interesting? He bears their burdens, their griefs, their sorrows, and their sins. And he bears them all away so that the people are restored into relationship with God. And then as he bears their sins, he also removes his people from that domain of the oppressor. He breaks the bonds to the yoke. And he frees his people to live new lives governed by him. Now the child is also a son. And this son has glorious names. And we would say the name above all names. The name of God himself. Now in the Bible, when you speak about the name of somebody, you're not referring to the letters that make up the name. You're referring to what this person is in essence, in character, his qualities. And so this is saying what this child is, and not even that he's trying to be these things, or he will one day be these things, but this is who he is right now. So this child is God. One of the names that he's called is Wonderful. And I'm aware that some people say there are five names here, and some people say there's four. And in the end, it doesn't really matter because altogether they describe this person. So if you think there's five or four or six, not a big deal, just stick with me. I, probably nobody was worried about this, right? What's for lunch? I get it. Wonderful. And that means, literally, it's a noun, it means miracle. And a miracle is the power of God coming into human existence, into history, into reality as we know it. Just like when God frees Israel from Midian with 300 guys. That's God's power. All right? God doing only what God can do. And that means that this son, this child, is marked by 
miracles, the power of God. So you think about his birth. Isaiah in chapter 7 speaks of a virgin who will bear a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, the angel told this child's mother that she would bear a son. And she said, how shall this be since I am a virgin? I don't have a relationship with a man. I'm engaged. But this is impossible. And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So this Son comes into the world by the power of God, a miracle. In Isaiah 35, verse 4, it says, Say to those who are fearful-hearted, Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. So see, these things are going to mark the life of this son. Things that only God can do. And you remember that the blind man that Jesus healed in John chapter 9, the religious leaders didn't like this. And he says, well, listen, nobody has ever opened the eyes of a blind man in all of history. This is something only God can do. And so this son, his life is marked with things like lame people walking, blind people seeing, the deaf hearing. Now it says that his name is also going to be called Counselor. This son gives good counsel. And he makes strategies that never fail. And that means whatever he plans will succeed and nothing can stop him. Now the oppressor, the devil, he's pretty smart. He's wise. And no one can outthink him. I don't know if you've ever tried that. Have you ever had some days when you wanted to get something done, but, oh, this came up, and, oh, that came up, and finally you realize, man, I've been doing all this little piddly stuff, and I didn't get that important thing done. You feel like, man, I was really stymied there. The devil knows how to outthink us. Kind of like taking candy from a baby. You know how to do that? You just go... That's it. You got it. And he kind of does that with us. No way. Where'd my candy go? Doggone it. But the son has all counsel because the Spirit of the Lord will be upon him. This is what it says in Isaiah 11. 
There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness. He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now, he's not going to go by what he sees and what he hears. That's what everybody else is forced to go with. Because we, we don't know what's inside a person. We can't tell what they're thinking. That's why that guy who faked a hate attack in the United States. And he goes up for trial. And even the guys he was working with were saying, yeah, he paid us to do this. But he says, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And he's still maintaining his innocence even after he's been convicted of lying on seven counts to the police. So there's... I mean, it seems like there's no way he could be telling the truth. But we don't know for sure. Just all the evidence points to the fact he's lying. But see, when you come to God, his understanding is infinite. And so he knows. So there's no such thing as spin before God. Like, uh, I'll, the, the circumstances are interesting, Lord. Let me explain it to you. You see, the nurse dropped me on my head, and that's where it started. It's not my fault. We won't be able to say a word in his presence because we know better. He knows better. So, the son doesn't guess. And this, when it talks about the spirit of counsel and might... That's a phrase that's only used in one other spot, which is Isaiah 36, and the context is war. Counsel and might to wage war. Now, that means that whatever war the son gets into, he wins. But he's, he's got the Holy Spirit of counsel and might. He cannot be defeated because his counsel is absolute, and it's going to stand. And it's amazing how the son chose to win the fight against the oppressor. How he outthought the oppressor. It's amazing. You know what his big plan was? Write it out hundreds of years in advance so that anybody can read it, even the oppressor. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come in weakness and foolishness. And the oppressor goes, good, I'll make sure he gets killed. And at that moment, the father places upon the son all of the sins of the world. And the son pays for those sins, redeems people by his death. And then, because the son is innocent, 
It is unjust to leave him dead. And so the father rules in favor of the son, overturns the conviction, and raises him from the dead. So everything the oppressor did to win actually fulfilled the purpose of God. How do you like that? Paul talks about this wisdom in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And he says, this is a wisdom which none of the rulers of this age understood because if they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Just a second, devil. Do you realize that when you kill Jesus, you are dooming yourself? I don't believe that. Okay, just thought I'd warn you. Can you imagine? So Paul says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the son says, I'm going to win in stupidity and weakness. He really is the counselor. And he knows exactly what he's doing. Now, the next name is Mighty God. And you say, okay, how mighty? And the answer is, stronger than death. Now, the Bible is interesting on this point because it says that the Father raised him from the dead. And it also says that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. But Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 17, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So, the Son is the mighty God, stronger than death. He's also the eternal Father. Now, is this interesting that you have a Son who is the eternal Father? There's only one. And yet, He is the eternal Father. How do we get around this? The Son reveals the exact character of the Father. So it says in John chapter 1, verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He has explained Him to the point where one of His disciples says, just show us the Father, and it's enough. That'll be good for us. He says, have I been with you for so long, Philip, and yet you've not known me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So how is it that you say, show us the Father? Look at me. Now, what always bugs us is, you look at Jesus, and there's a guy. 
So it's none of this blinding light and transcendent powers like, whoa, no man can see me and live. That's what God says to Moses. But then you look at Jesus and you can see him. Because again, Jesus explains the exact character of the Father. And you know what the most important thing is? He thinks about others. And he is concerned about others. When he describes himself, he describes himself as, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's who God is. He's all-powerful. He knows everything. He's everywhere at once, of course. But as far as he is concerned, the most important thing is that he thinks about others and he cares enough to do something about it. So Jesus communicates the love of the Father to us. We get to know how our Father in Heaven feels about us. And He's not out there somewhere talking on phones, doing business, too busy to play with the kids. Here, kid, here's a hundred. Go out and buy yourself a bike. Jesus communicates the love of the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's how much God loves us and that's what Jesus communicates so that we get it. God loves me. Wow. And then Prince of Peace. You know, the result of all that power and miracle and counsel and the Father's heart, all of that works together to make peace. So his will is that this peace is going to continue forever. No more breaks in the peace, no more war, no more darkness, gloom, anguish, Frustration, rage, helplessness, and death. Nope. It's going to be good, only better. And that's what peace is. Now, this government, it goes back to his government, and this government is not obnoxious. You're never going to walk away from this government going, doggone, why don't they get it right? Why is it so arbitrary? We're all going to say, this is the best government. I love being ruled by the sun. What a government. This is government. This is established with judgment. And that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. That's where the government was established. Because all of God's people 
were made righteous at the cross. So Jesus, having been raised from the dead, the government rests on his resurrected shoulder. So here's the government who has fulfilled all the demands of God's law, fulfilled all obedience, fulfilled all righteousness demanded by that law, which is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and nobody's ever done it except this son. He fulfilled it all. And then he fulfilled all the curses demanded by the law for disobedience. When you don't love the Lord your God, this is what you get. So look at him. He established his government in judgment, in justice, and he's going to uphold this forever. Now, this government is never going to pass to another. It's not going to be like Rome that's been around for a thousand years and then it just kind of falls apart. And now it's just a bunch of pillars and stones over here and we just found a mosaic over here. And, but it's all buried and gone and forgotten. This kingdom's going to last forever. It's never going to get weak, weary. Now, God is going to do this. We know he's going to do this because he's already done a lot of it. Isn't it amazing? I mean, we're out of time right now where we can look back at these things and say, wow, God has already done a lot of it. See, God, the Father, gave his son 2,000 years ago. And the son has established his government in righteousness. And, you know, Jesus was busy in Galilee of the Gentiles. That's where he did most of his ministry. That's fulfilled. So they saw a great light. And then the message is amnesty. All rebels can surrender, lay down their arms, and won't be punished. That's what we're proclaiming to everybody is there's still time for you to come in to the government of the Son. There's still time for you to give up and you're not going to get killed. So lay down your weapons and come out with your hands up and you're going to live and not die. So, the son has done all these things, and he did it with zeal. Do you remember in John chapter 2 when Jesus makes a whip of cords and goes through the temple and cleans it up, kicks out the money lenders and all the scam businesses going on there? And it says, his disciples remembered later, zeal for your house will consume me. And that's how the son accomplished all these things, with zeal. 
He's into it. So this is hope that doesn't disappoint. Like, not like in the world where it's dark and it's the same old stuff and it goes on and on, it cranks, and it's like, there's no hope here. There's no hope. This is a true hope because it's going to happen. You know, God has done all these things, and then at the last he's going to say, ah, I don't care anymore. I'm tired. Let evil win. I got a headache. I'm done. I'm super done. Can you imagine God running out of zeal? Just when it comes to the point where he's going to establish this kingdom, peace, get rid of the oppressor, he goes, nah. Man, it's been thousands of years. I'm, I'm going to do something else. Get some different Legos and start working on Star Wars. It's ridiculous. So, this is meant to be encouraging. God is super into Christmas. So we get to be into Christmas too. And it is about gifts and receiving. Legitimately. Because, you see, God has given unto us. And the question is, are you us? Are you one of those people that has received the Son? Because it's only for people who have received the Son. If you receive Him, then He is all these things to you. And if you haven't, you're not us. And you're stuck in the gloom, the anguish, the helplessness, the rage. You're stuck. You're going to have a blue Christmas, a black Christmas. So one of the things we do is we urge everybody to receive the gift. Can you imagine? Somebody wants to give you a gift, and you go, eh, I don't think so. <laughs> they try to give it to you, but you go, eh, I have no arms. I can't take it. Drop it but I'm not going to do it. We just say, come on, receive it. Because think about how fabulous this gift is. Again, I've been thinking about gloom this Christmas, how grim the world is getting. There's a part of me that just says, I'm super tired of this. I wish I could quit. And it it aggravates you. You read the news, and it makes you angry. So my solution is stop reading the news. I'm a lot happier. I don't know what's going on, but I can imagine. But Jesus is the one who overcomes all these things with his marvelous light. I mean, we can actually see the things that are happening in his light and realize we're not far from this eternal kingdom being set up on this planet, in history. It's about to happen. 
So I ask myself, would I like to just get tired of all this just before it's going to happen? No way. And God is going to finish what he's begun. See, he's already done so much. How in the world is he going to just not do it? It cannot happen. So he will finish what he's begun. Because he's got this zeal. And this is what interests me. Okay, What kind of zeal is it? And the answer is, it's the zeal of love. Stick with me here. This might be a little dumb, but I don't think it is. So, on you. What popped into my head thinking about this was the book of Ruth. And there's a couple of characters in there. One is Ruth. She's from Moab. She's like a foreigner and untouchable. And she comes back to Israel. Nobody wants to mess with somebody from Moab. She's way on the outs. And dress in your best and put a little perfume on and ask him to be your kinsman redeemer because legally he can buy you out of poverty and you can get married to him. So she does it. She says, Will you be my kinsman redeemer? And he says, yes, I will. But he says, we got a problem here. It's a legality. There's somebody who's closer than me. And this is hard, because if he wants to redeem you, well, okay. But if he gets out of the way, I tell you by the Lord, I will do this. So he says, here, take this barley home. And this is, this is telling you I'm serious. And then she gets home, and Naomi asks her, well, what happened? She goes, well, he's going to take care of business. And Naomi says, you bet he will. Let's just see what's going to happen. He's not going to rest until it's taken care of today. Zeal. Boaz is into business. Let's get down and get some legal stuff done. You know why? He's in love. He's going to take care of everything legally, but he's going to make all the effort. I just think it's so interesting that you have this love story in the Bible. And you get to look at this, you say, it's a love story. Yeah, but that's what God is about. That's why he did this at all. Because he loves us. Yes, he loves the entire planet. And yes, he loves you personally. Now, Boaz did not just sit back. He got down to business because... He loves Ruth. And you know, the father is getting down to business because he loves us, and he's not going to stop until he has done everything here that he's promised because he's into it. He's not going to forget us. He's not going to drop us on our heads. 
And he's going to give us what we need when we need it. Which means zeal. When you find yourself running out and getting tired and upset and frustrated and angry, you can go to God and say, hey, I could use a little bit of zeal. (laughs) I like the wonderful and the counselor and the mighty God and eternal father and prince of peace, but I could use some zeal if you got any. And he says, I got it. I can keep you rolling here. And you receive that zeal by receiving Jesus. Because he's got that love. And that's really what needs, what we need in our hearts to keep us rolling. Man, if I know that God loves me, I'm happy. I'm doing this extreme victory dance. And if I don't think God loves me, man, where's my gun and my bullet? Let's just do it now. Why prolong the agony? So think about zeal and say, okay, God, got to have it. No fooling. Sock it to me. And he will do that because that's what he's about. I'm done. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that you love us. And that is what has motivated you all these thousands of years. To plan and to strategize and to give so that we can receive Jesus and life and light and peace and your love. We need all these things. And we pray together today that everyone here would receive your son. That we could really have Christmas. Because this is what it's about. Peace that will never end. Your love. We thank you for that. Is there anyone who wants to receive Jesus this morning? Anybody want to lay down their arms and surrender and say, yes, I want you to govern me. I want out of the gloom and the anguish. I want to come into the light. If anybody wants to receive Jesus, why don't you look up at me while everybody is praying and Let me know. Good. Anybody else wants to receive Jesus? Okay. Lord, we're so thankful. 
that we get to receive Jesus, that you are kind and gentle and you're not giving him as a gift for being superior. You're giving him to sinners. And we want to receive him this morning. So Lord, come in and cleanse, refresh, renew, and govern. Thank you that you know what to do. You're never at a loss. And we thank you that you give us peace. We pray that your peace would overflow us this Christmas. that in each of our houses you would give us light so that it won't be a dark, gloomy Christmas. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.